A quick note before we start the show. In this series, we're taking a look at myths from modern day legends to stories that are thousands of years old. Some of them might seem a bit scary, but we're talking about them because we want to understand the important role they play in our lives and dig into the history and facts behind them. And of course, there's all the usual brains on fun too. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to Brains On, where we are serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. A long, long time ago, a tribe of people lived in South America in the Andes Mountains near a sacred lake. They had a special tradition. Whenever a new leader came into power... Our new leader! Quick, ready the raft! They covered the new leader in gold dust. They gathered heaps of gold and emeralds. Then the leader and the treasure floated out to the middle of the lake on a raft. Off you go. Ooh, did you see that gold? Oh my gosh. It is an amazing amount of gold. Once the raft reached the middle of the lake, the leader signaled for silence. Then... The leader threw the gold and emeralds into the water as an offering to a god who lived at the bottom of a lake. Once the raft came back toward land, the tribe cheered on their new leader. The god at the bottom of the lake will be so pleased. When Spanish explorers came to South America and heard about this tradition, their eyes lit up. Have you heard how this tribe celebrates a leader? All that gold. El Dorado. Dorado means gold in Spanish. And over time, the legend morphed into being about a city of gold left behind by these tribes and hidden in the forest. And many, many people look for this stockpile of treasure. It's got to be here somewhere. Explorers did find gold and gems at the bottom of the lake in Colombia. Lake Guadavita, but the mythical city of El Dorado has never appeared. Maybe the riches are still waiting somewhere. This is Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co-host today is Elliot from Bemidji, Minnesota. Hi, Elliot. Hi. This episode is part two of a four-part series on myths and legends. In the last episode, we scanned the horizons for mythical creatures on land. Check it out if you haven't already. In this episode, we're finding our way toward lost worlds. Cities mysteriously hidden in the jungle. Civilizations wiped out in giant floods. Islands that sunk to the bottom of the sea. From the depths of time up through today, myths and legends wind their way into culture and into lore. But is there truth? Well, let's explore. Scanning the clues of history for creatures on land and in the sea. Lost worlds hidden under your toes. Hey, over there, is that a UFO? Armed with knowledge and with proof, Help us to uncover what is real and what's a spoof. Myths and legends we'll discover. 
So, Elliot, have you ever heard a story about a lost world? Oh, I think about Pompeii. Yeah, so Pompeii was a city in Italy that existed until the volcano Mount Vesuvius erupted and wiped it out. It's like gone. Yeah, the ash covered the city and they had to excavate it. So they had to dig it up to find the city. And so the city's kind of been preserved in ash. It's very, very cool. So, Elliot, if you were going to look for a lost city, where would you look? I would look near water because most lost cities have been, like, flooded by floods. So they were there, and then they got covered by water. Mm-hmm. That is a great idea, Elliot. There's one mythical island called Atlantis that has a really famous story of being flooded. We asked mythology expert Sarah Burdarf to join us again to talk about that story and others. Hi, Elliot. Hey. Can you tell us the story of Atlantis? I would love to tell you the story of Atlantis. A long, long time ago... Poseidon, who was the Greek god of the sea, was given an island, a huge island, and he fell in love with a lady who lived on the island, and they had ten sons. And he made those sons the kings of this giant island. It was a beautiful place to live, and the weather was perfect, and they had all the food they needed. And when they dug in the ground, they found so much silver and gold and precious metal that they could use it for their buildings. That's how much they had to make sure that they stayed peaceful and that they stayed as happy as they were when the island started. Poseidon gave them laws and rules to follow, to be kind to each other and to take care of each other. But the longer they lived on the island, they started to forget why those rules were important and forgot so much about what Poseidon had wanted them to remember that Poseidon's brother, Zeus, who was the king of all of the Greek gods, he decided that he needed to teach them a lesson. And so in one day and one night, he flooded Atlantis. He sent earthquakes and giant tidal waves and he washed the city away and all the buildings crumbled into the sea and the island disappeared. And Atlantis didn't exist anymore. Wow. Holy cow. (laughs) It's funny that you would say holy cow, Elliot, because one of the symbols for Poseidon is actually a bull. And that was one of their sacred animals on Atlantis. So they actually had holy cows. (laughs) (laughs) Where do stories about floods or underwater worlds come from? Yeah, um, there are a couple different theories about where they might come from. People would find sometimes just from the way that the world was formed, they would find a, an imprint or a fossil of a seashell on top of a mountain. And they would think, like, how did that get there? So that's one possibility. Another possibility comes from, like, an original story based on an original event. So if a local river flooded, people remembered it for a long time. And then when those people migrated out of that area, they took that story and those memories of that very big event with them. How do these stories help the people who told them? Telling a story about how something came to be can help us make a little bit more sense out of it. Another thing that stories do, they help us explore possibilities. So they are those kind of what-if experiences where, you know, imagine if you had a an island that, you know, the gods were taking care of, but then the people got greedy and selfish. What would happen or what could happen? 
And those what ifs, those wonderings, they're used to teach lessons. So myths and legends might have helped people think about possible situations like giant rainstorms or flooded rivers. And maybe those stories also taught people ways of handling different situations. Yeah, exactly. So it can also help shape a sense of community, because if people all tell a story a similar way, that's their story. And that's that's their little piece of the universe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Elliot and Molly. El Dorado and Atlantis are two mythical lost cities we've never found. Sometimes archaeologists do find cities that seemed lost. Brains on producer Manika Wilhelm has a story of one of those cities in Egypt. Around 2,500 years ago, this city was a big, bustling place. It was the gateway to Egypt, right where the Nile River meets the Mediterranean Sea. There was a busy harbor and lots of canals. It was bigger than Pompeii, that famous city in Italy. People here lived in mud brick houses, and they built big temples made of stone. And visitors came here from all around the Mediterranean. They came to trade goods and also for big festivals celebrating the Egyptian gods. Then, one day, it disappeared. So at first, researchers learned about this place in ancient texts. People wrote about this place, and that's how we learned its name. Tonis Heraklion. Aurelia Masson-Bergoff is an Egyptologist who has studied Egyptian cities like Thonis Heraklion. She and other researchers knew it existed because they found all kinds of records in nearby places. They saw taxes people had paid for bringing goods into Thonis Heraklion and notes about people who visited Thonis Heraklion. But where was Thonis Heraklion itself? The records stopped about 1,500 years into the city's history— And no one could find any part of the city anywhere in Egypt. Sometimes ancient cities in Egypt get buried in sand. And archaeologists figured maybe that's what happened here. Nobody suspected that the city was submerged under the water. The very first clue about finding this city came in the 1930s, when a Royal Air Force pilot was flying over the Mediterranean Sea, north of Egypt. There's something down there in the water. That seemed really interesting to an archaeologist named Frank Godio, but he didn't know exactly where to look in the sea at first. He and his crew used sound waves and other measurements to search underwater. It took years, but eventually they found something. Now, I hope you've got your scuba suit and swim fins ready, because we're going about 30 feet underwater to the remains of the lost city of Thonis Heraklion. I asked a diver named Eric Wharton-Weiler-Smith to show us around. He helped uncover Thonis Heraklion with Frank Godio's team. Let's dive in. Now, one thing, when we get to the bottom, we take our fins off. We're wearing a lot of heavy weights and equipment, so you can kind of walk around on the bottom. So we're breathing air from oxygen tanks and wearing wetsuits to stay warm. The water is a bit murky, but we can look around through our scuba masks. There's plenty of rocks and there's fish swimming around and there's piles of sand and debris that you and your team have have pulled out. When Eric dove here, he and his team used lots of different tools to dig up items from Thonis Heraklion that were buried in the sand. One tool is almost like an underwater vacuum. And it sucks up the material, the sand and the mud, and it blows it a few feet away. 
they also found some things without any digging at all. Even though the city has been on the bottom of the sea for thousands of years, there's plenty of times where we would just be walking along and see a rock, and then underneath the rock was a bronze bowl with images on it. And it's just there. They found giant stone statues and the walls of a temple. They've also found big ceramic jugs, metal lamps, and gold jewelry and coins. Each item tells us more about what Thonis Heraklion was like as a city and how it changed over time. And the team has started to piece together why Thonis Heraklion ended up under the sea. It seems like the city sank when an earthquake hit. The earthquake shaking created giant waves, or a tsunami. And when those giant waves flooded the city's sand and clay soil, it pushed the city under the sea. For thousands of years, the city was lost. But in a way, being lost for all that time has made it easier for us to learn about Thonis Heraklion now. In other Egyptian cities, historical items got damaged or reused and made into other things. It can be hard for archaeologists to find statues or coins or ceramics in their original form. But because Thonis Heraklion, you know, was sunken under the sea, a lot of these objects are perfectly preserved. And there are hundreds of years of history to find here. Franco Dio's team is still learning more about the site. Despite all the things they have discovered, he said that only 5% of the cities has been explored. So, even though archaeologists have found amazing things at Thonis Heraklion so far, it turns out there's even more lost city to find in the future. Brains, brains, brains. We've got something to uncover, too. Are you ready for the mystery sound, Elliot? Oh, I'm ready. All right, here it is. What is your guess? I hear some metal, Mm -hmm. like buckets, banging against each other. Excellent guess. So you definitely heard metal. Well, we're going to give you another chance to guess in just a bit. Have you got questions for Brains On? Maybe you've drawn a super cool mythical creature or heard a silly, strange sound. Hit us up at brainson.org slash contact. We love checking out everything you send in. Brainson.org slash contact is the place to send questions, drawings, and mystery sounds. That's how we got this question. Hi, my name is Logan from Queen Creek, Arizona. And my question is, how does a permanent tattoo stay forever? We'll get to the bottom of that at the end of the show. So keep listening. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. 
They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. You're listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Elliot. I'm Molly. I'm Mark. And I'm Sandin. Oh, hi, guys. You're back. Yeah, for another edition of Hoax. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's count it down. Ready? Three, two, one. We like myths, but we hate getting tricked. Yeah. We like myths, but we hate getting tricked. You're right. We like myths, but we hate getting tricked. We hate getting tricked. No, we don't like it. We're uncovering hoaxes throughout history. First off, a hoax is when someone tricks you into believing something that's not true. Ugh, like that time you tricked me into thinking there was a two-for-one sale on sacks of sugar at the sugar store? <laughs> I know. I've never seen anyone run so fast. It was awesome. Ugh, anyway. Today, we're looking at a case from 1885, when the local newspaper in Moberly, Missouri, published a sensational story. The report said that miners had accidentally discovered an entire city hidden over 300 feet below ground. They said they found roads and walls and tools and even art. And most amazing of all, a skeleton, three times the size of a normal person, a giant. Had there once really been a secret society of giants living below the city of Moberly? Nah. On April 11th, the newspaper's editor fessed up. He said, the story is an April hoax, not a word of truth in it. So there you have it, hoax hunted. All right. Let this be a lesson to all of us. Always check your facts and sources, especially if a story seems a bit fishy or gianty. Yeah. We'll catch you next time on 3, 2, 1. Hoax Hunters! Yeah. Let's get back to that mystery sound. Here it is again. Okay, so last time you were very sure you heard metal. Do you have any other thoughts? Ooh, cars. Um, like they're rubbing cars oh. against each other. Well, you ready for the answer? Yep. The sound you just heard was a sewer cover being removed. So sewer covers are those big metal circles you sometimes see in a road. They usually lead to sewers or pipes, but if you found the right sewer cover in Manchester, England, it would lead you to an abandoned underground neighborhood. It's called the Victoria Arches, and it's a network of tunnels, shops, and cellars constructed over a hundred years ago. They built these tunnels underground to connect with the river that runs through the city in a canal way below street level. The idea was you could hop off a riverboat and head straight into a tunnel filled with shops. But eventually, after a lot of flooding and a lot of pollution, the city decided to close off the Victoria Arches. And now, many people don't realize this underground part of the city ever existed. Similar things have happened all over the world, like in downtown Seattle, where there's a whole neighborhood hidden underground. In the late 1800s, this part of the city was at street level. But when a fire destroyed 31 blocks, the city decided to build on top of the old neighborhood, creating a lost world right beneath people's feet. Humongo, holy cow. So far, we've talked about different places that were lost in the past. 
But did you ever think about losing cities in the future? Our Brains On reporter Ruby Guthrie is here to talk all about it. At least, she's supposed to be here. Molly! Sorry I'm late. I just ran over here from the airport. Have you ever tried running in rain boots? I don't recommend it. That's okay. Why are you wearing rain boots? Well, I just got back from Miami, Florida, where I was learning about flooding. Miami's always had floods, especially after hurricanes and heavy rains. But now sometimes some neighborhoods near the shore are flooding, even on the sunny days. Oh, oh, right. I've heard about this. It's not just Miami. Cities and towns on coasts around the world are flooding more and more often. Scientists say it's all because of sea level rise. Exactly. Sea level rise is another effect of climate change, something you've talked about before on the show. But just to remind everyone, I'm going to do a 30-second recap. Got the timer ready? Yep. Ready, set, go! Okay, the Earth is getting warmer because of this gas called carbon dioxide, a.k.a. CO2. Humans exhale CO2. Just like that. But we also release a lot more of it when we burn stuff called fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are things like gas and coal. We burn them to heat our homes and power our cars and lots of other reasons. Now when CO2 goes up in the air, it actually traps heat in our atmosphere. So over time, as we release more and more CO2, our planet gets warmer and warmer. And time. Nice job, Ruby. Thanks. So those are just the basics. As the Earth heats up, so does the ocean. And when things heat up, they expand, which makes sea levels rise. Plus, all that extra heat is melting the glaciers, which also raises sea levels. Some people worry if this continues, whole cities just like Miami could end up underwater. Yikes, like Atlantis. Right. But I talked to a scientist who says this doesn't have to be our destiny. What's interesting is that climate change, which causes sea level rise, is a human-caused issue. That's Tiffany Troxler from Florida International University. She's the director of science at the Sea Level Solutions Center. She studies how sea level rise affects our environment and our lives. There are things that we can do as humans to both mitigate the extent of things like sea level rise, um, as well as reduce or adapt to the impacts of sea level rise, which would help to make us not turn into Atlantis. (laughs) Tiffany says there are two types of sea level solutions. We can do mitigation, which is to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. Like riding your bike instead of driving a car that burns fossil fuels. Exactly. Then there's adaptation. These are strategies that are Uh, used to reduce the impacts of sea level rise. This includes things like raising up buildings in flooded areas or moving away from the coastline. Some solutions use mitigation and adaptation. One of my personal faves is the... Massive super cyborg that sucks up the seawater and also eats carbon? That sounds awesome, but I was actually thinking of something in nature that's existed for thousands of years. They're called mermaids. Yes, mermaids can solve everything. Not quite. I'm talking about mangroves. Man what now? Mangroves. They're a type of tree that grows on coastlines. But they're not just any tree. They're flood-fighting superheroes. I actually brought one back for you. Bring it in. You put an entire tree in your suitcase? Oh, yeah. I'm a really good packer. Anyways, here's your souvenir. (sighs) Thanks. This is Manuel the Mangrove. Say hi, Manuel. That's okay, Ruby. Most trees don't talk. 
Oh, but Manuel isn't like most trees. He's super resilient, which means he can survive really difficult conditions. Okay, so looking from the top down, you got your standard green leaves, grayish brown trunk, but holy moly, look at those roots. They're all knottled and tangled and overlapping in every direction. Bananas, right? Mangroves grow in places with very wet soil. Wet soil doesn't have enough oxygen for most plants, but mangroves survive because they get extra oxygen through tiny cell-sized pores on the surface of their bark and on those wild above-ground roots. That's amazing. That's not even the best part. Mangroves also grow in places that get flooded by super salty ocean water. Salt water would usually dry up your everyday run-of-the-mill plant, but not a mangrove. Oh no. The tree either filters out the salt from the root or pushes out the salt crystals through the leaves. Manuel, you're just full of superpowers, huh? <sighs> He's just a humble guy. What can I say? That's cool and all, but, but how does it help a sea level rise? So, mangroves, like all plants, take carbon dioxide from the air and use it to help their roots, branches, and leaves grow. Eventually, the leaves and branches fall off and are buried deep into the soil where the carbon is locked away. That means less carbon in the atmosphere and less warming. And less sea level rise. Right. Mangroves are also a great first line of defense against floods and tropical storms. Their tangled roots slow down the waves and prevent the soil from washing away. But it doesn't end there. Mangroves can actually build up their soils vertically to prevent further erosion. This keeps the coastline strong, preventing the waves from creeping past the beach and flooding neighborhoods. Wow. Okay, that is a super tree. Right? But... As amazing as mangroves are, they're just one of many solutions we're going to need to help fight climate change. Well, thanks for stopping by, Ruby, and thanks for bringing Manuel. Of course. Now, I'm going to make like a tree and leave. <laughs> Get it? That pun was bad. Manuel? Manuel! I knew you'd come around. But hey, you taught me that one. Yes. I regret that now. Manuel... People all over the world have legends about lost places. These legends tell us that cities and lands have shifted in the past. Sometimes in places like Seattle, new old cities got built right on top of the older ones. Farther back in history, cities did get swept underwater, like Thanis Heraklion in Egypt. But if you hear about a lost city, and it seems made up, maybe check those facts. Sea level rise is a threat to cities on the coast today, but there are many ways scientists are working to mitigate and adapt to this change. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is made by Manica Wilhelm, Sandin Totten, Mark Sanchez, and Molly Bloom. Elissa Dudley, Ruby Guthrie, Rosie DuPont, and Tracy Mumford made this mythical series a reality. We had engineering help from Veronica Rodriguez, John Anger, Valentino Rivera, and Eric Romani. We also had production help from Christina Lopez. Special thanks to Will Lager, Hannah Yang, Eric Ringham, and Taka Zen. Before we go, it's time for our moment of um. How does a permanent tattoo stay forever? I am Rupal Kundu, and I am a dermatologist at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. A dermatologist is a doctor or physician who takes care of people's issues with their skin, hair, and nails. 
So the tattoo um, is injected by a needle and the needle just holds that ink and it penetrates through the skin. The skin has two main layers. The top layer is called the epidermis. That's what we see on the outside. And that layer of the skin actually is constantly shedding. That's the skin cells that are shedding. Every month you have a new layer of epidermis that's generated. But now that needle with the ink in it is going into the next layer of skin called the dermis. And that layer doesn't shed. It stays put. So tattoos are basically small, tiny little injuries to the skin. And what happens anytime you have a wound is that cells, immune cells come and try to heal that wound. And in this case, there's a certain type of cell called macrophages. And those cells basically try to eat up the tattoo ink. And because the tattoo ink is so big, they're able to clamp onto it, but they really can't chew it all up. And so that tattoo ink gets stuck in those macrophages and they just hang out there in that layer called the dermis. And then you have a tattoo. One of the ways laser technology works when people try to remove their tattoos, um, the laser is processing lots of heat, lots of energy, and that energy essentially heats up the tattoo ink, expands it, but then kind of shatters it, and it breaks up into tiny little pieces, and then those pieces are small enough for the macrophages to chew up and remove from the dermis, the skin, and then you get the lightning over time. It's just it takes lots and lots of treatments to do that and lots of time. Um, um, um. These names are permanently in my heart. It's time for the Brains Honor Roll. These are the amazing listeners who send us their questions, ideas, drawings, and high fives. Alejandro from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Sophie from Falcon Heights, Minnesota, Kaya from Front Royal, Virginia, Raleigh from New York City, Dakota from Canton, Georgia, Levi from Austin, Texas, Calvin from Roseville, Minnesota, Dusty from Orinda, California, Trishti from Toronto, Johanna from Romeo, Michigan, Judah from Arlington, Massachusetts, Oliver from Westminster, Colorado, Miles from Tampa, Florida, Sella from Sarasota, Florida, Owen from Woodbury, Minnesota, David from Rochester, Washington, Izzy, Lizzie, and Z from San Diego, Reese from Texas, Katie and Lila from Baltimore, Toby from Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, Catherine from North Carolina, George from Storrs, Connecticut, Ike from Australia, Briley from Utah, Liam and Kaylee from Richmond Hill, Georgia, Olivia from Marietta, Georgia, Sadie from San Francisco, Emily from Sierra Vista, Arizona, Olivia from Austin, Texas, Abigail from Austin, Texas, Devin from Vancouver, Jacob, Ben and Abby from Manteca, California, Zoe from Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Sabrina and Valentina from Conroe, Texas, Isaac from Charleston, South Carolina, Josie from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Finn from Stillwater, Minnesota, Catherine from Fargo, Josephine from Wisconsin, Emma from Potomac, Maryland, Layla from St. Louis, Jude from Denver, Sebastian from Stony Brook, New York, Matilda, Cleveland, and Dorothy from Falmouth, Maine, Aiden from Orlando, Florida, Ida from Bozeman, Utah, Brian from Great Neck, New York, Daniel from Auckland, New Zealand, Jesh and Anshi from San Ramon, California, Molly from Somerville, Massachusetts, Penny from Bozeman, Montana, Owen from Billings, Montana, Grace and Lucy from Provo, Utah, Lily from Chesapeake, Virginia, Scarlett from Georgia, Connor, Henry, and Patrick from Andover, Massachusetts, Efraim from Deerfield, Massachusetts, Odin from Duluth, Minnesota, and Lucas and Maya from Clear Lake, Minnesota. We'll be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.